We've got a small group of guys that meets every Thursday morning at Papa's Breakfast Nook to pray. We meet at 6 o'clock. We'd love for you to join us if you can. If you're up that early, we spend some time praying and manage to work in a little conversation about football and all that. But this past Thursday, um, I noticed that our church's adopted police officer, we've got an adopted police officer with the Spartanburg Police Department, Art Littlejohn, was eating breakfast in Papa's. And I went up and said hello to him and we left and went back my day and I got a text a little bit later where he basically said, hey, somebody paid for my breakfast this morning and I'm guessing it was probably you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. To which I replied, well, I wish it was me, but actually it wasn't me. Um, maybe it was one of our other guys. I don't know. You'll have to keep investigating. You're a police officer. You can, you can, you can figure that out. Um, and, you know, maybe you've had that experience before that you've thanked somebody for doing something and they weren't really the ones that did it and maybe it was a little awkward but it was it was fine at the end of the day right that's that's really not that big a deal but what about when we do that with God that's what our text is kind of going to ask us this morning we're going to we're going to sing the doxology at the end of worship this morning and you know how the doxology goes how it starts praise God from whom all blessings flow is it a Is it a big deal when we attribute the source of our blessings to someone or something other than God? When we sing, perhaps in our hearts, praise money from whom all blessings flow. Praise all my hard work and discipline from whom all blessings flow. Or in the case of our text this morning, praise Baal, the Canaanite God of fertility, from whom all blessings blessings flow is it a big deal when we do that our text says it is and we're going to think about that together this morning Uh, so if you would follow along with me i'm reading from hosea chapter 2 beginning in verse 2 and this is god's word plead with your mother plead for she is not my wife and i am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst upon her children. Also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her sabbaths, and her appointed feast. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. 
I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the bells when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Just pray with me. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, there, are, there are parts of it that are difficult to hear. There are parts of it that are overwhelming to hear. Uh, I pray that we would see you in this. Uh, to see you as the source of all blessing. Uh, and that you, kind Father, might move us to respond appropriately. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to pull out three big things from this passage about God. We're going to look at the God who provides blessing, the God who removes blessing, and then the God who actually restores blessing. So first of all, let's look at the God who provides blessing. I want to start with a little bit of history here. I think it's helpful looking in this book of Hosea. Uh, If you go back to Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abraham out of idolatry. His family were essentially moon worshipers. And he calls Abraham to himself. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And in fact, through you, all the other families of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, Abraham's, excuse me, descendants wind up in slavery in Egypt. God, through Moses, eventually brings them out of slavery gives them his law and the Ten Commandments and brings them to Canaan, this promised land that he had said that he was going to give them to and gives them this land, this land that's described in Scripture as a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, By the time of the prophet Hosea, while the nation has actually split into two, there's a northern and a southern kingdom at this point. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. While they have split into two, they're actually undergoing a time of great economic prosperity. Things are going well for them in terms of money but spiritually and morally and ethically the nation is really starting to fall apart the rich ignore the poor Uh, people are power hungry they are greedy the land is marked by murder and corruption and robbery and drunkenness Uh, the people are still going through the the motions of worshiping the god of the bible of worshiping yahweh But they've also added the gods of the Canaanite culture into the mix. They've added the Canaanite god Baal and his cohorts, these gods of fertility. The Canaanites felt if the land prospered, 
if the crops did well, it was because Baal had granted success to them. And so the Israelites have adopted the outlook of their culture and they've begun to worship the Baals. And so what God here is accusing Israel of throughout the book of Hosea is he's accusing Israel of running after other gods, of running after other lovers, of committing spiritual adultery, of attributing the blessings that they have been enjoying to other gods when these blessings have actually been coming to them through the hand of God himself. Now, um, are we ever guilty of running after other gods? Uh, We don't worship Baal, at least I haven't run across that recently. Uh, We don't worship gods made of, of silver or gold or wood or anything like that. But we do have idols in our hearts. We worship power, control, pleasure, things like that. We run after idols of food and football and political parties and political ideology. We bow down to idols of popularity and success uh, and and the right to be whoever I want to be. The whole uh, you-do-you thing is is one of the prevailing idols in our culture now. I, I heard someone summarize it recently as... If you don't both accept and applaud my self-expression, then you're a hater and I don't want to know you. Get out of my filter bubble. And so self-expression is one of these things we hold as just an absolute right. It's one of the, the, it can be one of the idols of our culture. But the, the question I want to think us, want us to think about today is not so much what are all these idols or, or possibly what are these idols But are we ever guilty of attributing the blessings that our country enjoys and the blessings that we as individuals enjoy to other gods? Uh, Sure we do. Uh, We're thankful for, how do we say it around Thanksgiving? We're thankful for nature's bounty. Not not for for God providing, but we're thankful for, for nature's bounty. Depending on our political or ideological perspective, we may think that our economic blessing is simply the result of adhering to free market economic principles or it's the result of wise government intervention. We think our blessings flow from our education or from our hard work. Um, I, I think maybe Nike was in the news this week. Was that, did, did, I, did I see something about that? Um, and, and can I just say whether you love Nike or hate Nike, you're welcome at our church, no matter what meme you posted this week. Um, but but what's, what's, what's Nike's slogan, right? What's their slogan forever? Just, no, it's Bo Knows. Uh, sorry. Right. It's, yes, it's that's the inside joke. Um, just do it, right? Just do it. And, and I would say that that slogan just summarizes so much about our American idolatry. If you just work harder, anything is possible. Just do it. Just work harder. Now, that actually is verifiably not true. Okay? There, there are many people who have worked really hard and everything has just fallen apart on them. That's verifiably not true. And it is a big part of, of our idolatry. Now, the Bible's not against hard work. Hard work's important. Education's important. Markets are important. All of that. But when we say... Look at what my hard work and my intelligence and my pursuit of education and my savvy, look at how they have brought me blessing. 
And we forget that God is the source of all blessing. When we forget the God who created us and gave us bodies, we didn't give ourselves these bodies, and and gave us minds and gave us intelligence and gave us the ability to gain wealth and placed us in families that influenced our work ethic. And we forget certain breaks have fallen our way because God and his kindness caused that. When we forget that certain tragedies have not befallen us because God in his kindness has spared us from those tragedies. When we show up at worship and go through the religious motions but forget the God from whom all blessings flow, we're actually very much in the same boat as the Israelites. Um, So let me make just a couple applications from this. One is you and I have to make a conscious effort to trace our blessings back to God. Uh, when, when I told Art, our adopted officer, I said, hey, I actually didn't buy you breakfast. Uh, the end of his reply was, well, everything good, or everything comes down from God above. And he was basically paraphrasing James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so we have to make a conscious effort to trace our blessings back to God. I've got a I've got a good friend who is financially secure. Uh, he has a respected career. He starts every day with his quiet time religiously. He starts every day right after that uh, by going to, to work out in the gym, which he has in his basement. And, he, you know, he's got four great kids. And on the wall of that gym, there's a verse, and it's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It says this, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And it's this reminder in the midst of, yes, it's hard work, that's important. But what do you have that you did not receive from God? And we have to consciously remind ourselves of that because we are so quick to forget and take credit for our blessings ourselves. Uh, secondly, um, if you're here and you, you don't believe in the God of the Bible, or maybe you're, you're not sure about Christianity or this God of the Bible, and yet you consider yourself a person who tries to be thankful. And you try to to express gratitude for life's blessing. Let me ask you this. Don't you feel like maybe that thankfulness is pointing you to someone? Like this, this, this need in your heart to be thankful, isn't that maybe pointing you to a person, a divine person even? I read, read an article, well, I didn't read all this article. The, you'll understand why I want to give you the title. The 31 Benefits of Gratitude You Didn't Know About, How Gratitude Can Change Your Life. All right, and the, the author starts by saying, I'm not religious, but here are 31 ways that practicing gratitude can make your life better. And he says, look, if you practice gratitude, he says it'll make you happier, make people like you, make us healthier, strengthens our emotions, reduces materialism. And, I, and I, okay, I, I kind of got the idea. Like, this is good for us to practice gratitude. And then in the middle of it, he says, I'm not religious and have found that gratitude practices make my spiritual position difficult. Those moments when I feel intense gratitude make me want to believe in a benevolent God. My solution has been to redirect my feelings towards Lady Luck. Now, most everybody in our culture who's involved in mental health at all would say that practicing gratitude is a big deal. That being thankful is a big deal. That's good for us emotionally. Why is that? 
Is that just a cheap trick? Is that just some random evolutionary wiring that now I just need to like say I'm thankful for, for things and that'll make me feel better? No, it's because there is a God from whom all blessings flow. And we know that. And we're wired to respond to that in thankfulness. There is a God to whom we owe gratitude, thankfulness to Lady Luck or to the force, or or whoever, makes no sense. Thankfulness only makes sense if there is a divine person that we are actually giving thanks to. And so if you're you're thankful for the blessings that you have in your life, that's, that's a right thing. That's a good emotion. That's the right kind of response. But those blessings are actually God's kindness to you. And Paul tells us in the book of Romans that God's kindness is actually meant to lead us to repentance, to lead us back to Him, meant to lead us to praise the God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, thirdly, uh, if, if you're a Christian, I imagine that you're thankful that God isn't going to treat you in the way that your sins deserve in an, in an ultimate sense. But are, are you ever amazed that God's everyday kindness to you in spite of your sin? Like just his kindness to you this morning, that in spite of the way that you and I have, have run after other gods this week and given credit to the wrong gods, uh, that even though we may have done things that could have gotten us kicked out of school or caused us to lose our jobs or caused our families to be torn apart, yet God has continued to bless us and to be kind to us in spite of our sin. You ever just kind of amazed by that? Amazed that, that maybe you've grown up in the church and yet have just shrugged your shoulders at God, and yet God continues to be kind and to bless you. And so the, the question as you think about that is, is God's kindness, will God's kindness lead you to repentance? Will it, it lead you to turn away from other lovers and to turn to God? The text calls us, back to this God who is the ultimate source of blessing. Secondly, the text points us to a God who removes blessing. God removes blessing if he feels like he needs to do that. Sometimes this is how God pursues his people. It's by removing blessing. Look in verse 9, he says, I will take back my grain. I will take away her wool. Verse 10, I will uncover her lewdness. Verse 11, I will put an end to all her mirth. Verse 12, I will lay waste her vines and fig trees. God is going to bring judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. But for those who respond properly to that chastisement, the result for them will be blessing. Uh, One guy put it this way. He said, God sometimes blesses us by removing our blessings. He prevents us from finding satisfaction in our lovers. He wants to bring us back to her senses, back to our senses. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, God actually warned the people that this could happen. He said, you're going to go into this land and you're going to start accumulating wealth. And the temptation is when you get prosperous is that you're going to forget about me. And they're forgetting about him. And so now verse 7, God says, I'm going to, I'm going to read that prosperity in order to bring you back to me. Uh, Next week, Matt Patrick is going to be preaching for us at our our Welcome Back 
Sunday for students, and he's told me he's going to preach on the parable of the prodigal son, and I'm going to steal a little bit of that right now, but not much. Um, the, the, in the parable of the prodigal son, you guys know this story. The younger brother asks the father for his share of the estate, and he runs off to the far country, and he wastes all of this money. He spends it all in, in wild living. And he finally gets to this place where he becomes desperate, and he comes to his senses, and he runs back to his father. Uh, Israel here in the Old Testament has been like, it's like Hosea saying, you're, you're a prodigal wife, and you've run off to the far country, and you've been chasing after other lovers, and, God, and now God is going to remove those blessings that Israel has experienced in the hope of bringing her to her senses. And sometimes God has to do that. Sometimes God has to remove our blessings in order to show us that the idols that we bow down to can't actually deliver. Um, last week, uh, some of you may have seen this, Bono, the lead singer of U2, was in the middle of a concert, in, I think it was in Germany, and lost his voice in the middle of the song. And the, the crowd finished the song for him, but then he just he couldn't sing anymore. Uh, and they had, to, they had to cancel the concert. And I'm, and I'm not using this to illustrate, this is how God brought Bono back to himself. Like, I don't know anything about all of that. But, but that is the kind of thing God would do in order to get our attention. If, if my identity is in singing, and singing is the most important thing in the world to me, and if it becomes more important to me than God, and if I attribute all of life's blessing to my ability to sing, then it might be the thing that God has to take away from me in order to bring me back to Him. Uh, I've talked to multiple athletes over the years. I've, I've heard this kind of repeating story that their life revolved around a sport, and then they got to college and they didn't make the team, or they had a career-ending injury, and then suddenly they had to figure out, well, who am I now that I can't play basketball or I can't play soccer or I can't play football? I, I don't know who I am anymore. And in that process, they began to see that that sport had become more fundamental to their identity than their relationship with God was. And when that sport was pulled out from under them, when God took away what they thought, man, this is the source of blessing in my life. When God took that away from them, it opened the door for them to begin to build their identity on their relationship with God to, to come home to Him. Uh, in the book, Redeeming Love, I, I meant this is the Christian romance novel my wife is making me read. Um, <laughs> Angel, some, some of you get that, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, in, the, in, this, in this book, uh, Angel the Prostitute is, is um, rescued by a man named Michael Hosea who rescues her out of prostitution. But she keeps running back. And she keeps running away. And he keeps going after her. And he keeps bringing her back. And finally she runs away one time and God says to Hosea, don't, don't go get her this time. She, she's got to figure this out on her own this time. And so she leaves. And she's determined finally that she's not going to back, go back to prostitution. But she's also determined to make it on her own. And I can do this myself. And I don't need God to do this. And so she goes out and she gets a job and it's going great. And then one day, the place where she's working burns to the ground. And she has no job and no home. And the pimp who she had once been enslaved to suddenly shows back up and is trying to force her back into prostitution again. 
And through all of this, everything just falling apart. Through all of this, God finally gets her to the place that she realizes that her only hope is in Him. I was reading an article this week about a, a pastor and seminary professor. You guys may remember this from a couple of years ago. Uh, the Ashley Madison scandal and all these people who were having online affairs and this was exposed and this pastor and seminary professor was exposed and he killed himself and I was thinking about that and I wondered what if he had actually believed that God sometimes removes our idols that he removes these things that we have put our trust in these places we have tried to find blessing that God disciplines those he loves in order to bring us to repentance in order to bring us home and shower us with his mercy what what if he could have seen that the exposure of his moral failure was an opportunity to run back to god and that god would have gladly welcomed him instead of seeing it as an occasion for despair you know you may feel like god has abandoned you this morning because of the, the, you know, the circumstances of your life, that he's turned your life upside down, that he's taken away what you thought was the only source of blessing in your life. Maybe he's exposed your sin and your shame. What if he's doing that not because he's out to get you, but he's doing that because he loves you so that you will come to your senses and come home to him so that you'll let go of your idols and grab hold of him. Grab hold of the God from whom all real blessing flows. Well, last thing here, we see a God who restores blessing. When, when our idols are exposed, when we are loaded with shame and guilt, when the waves are crashing over our head, there's actually a reason to be hopeful. Because the God who provides blessing and removes blessing is also the God who restores blessing. Verse 14, look, look at in verse 14. It, it begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. You know, in, in light of everything that you've read so far in this chapter, you're thinking, therefore, off with her head. Uh, but instead, therefore, I will allure her. I will seduce her. I will court her. I will entice her. God surprises us here in the middle of this chapter with these words of grace. And then the following verses paint this picture of a restored marriage, restored intimacy with God. We see this picture that finds some fulfillment in the Old Testament and then a fuller fulfillment in Christ's first coming and then a complete fulfillment in Christ's second coming, the new heavens, the new earth, when everything is made right but i was i was reading this and i thought well how is it that god allures us how does how does he entice us how does he court us and i think the answer is the gospel the answer is that god paints a picture of the welcome we will receive if we come home he he courts us with a better story than the story we've been trying to live our lives by uh, Thomas Chalmers has a pretty famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I've read parts of it before, but he says, If the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object 
an idol, is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away with, and all things are to become new. Now, what's, right, what does that mean in English? God is, is bringing Israel to see the emptiness of her idols. But Israel has also got to see the beauty of God. We may come to the point where we see the emptiness of an idol in our lives, but in order to just, in order to avoid just trading that idol in for a newer, shinier idol, in order to come all the way home, we have to see the beauty of God and be allured by that. And I think that's what Hosea is showing us. This beauty of this God who restores. Look, verse 14, there is this God who intends to allure us. A God who sees us as we are. A God who sees all of our Google search history and intends to woo us away from our idols and bring us back to Him. In verse 14, we're told that God intends to speak tenderly to us. That He's not going to go through the list of sin and we come home and berate us for it, but He's going to speak tenderly to us. Verse 16 and 17 it's a God who restores marital-like intimacy and allows us to call Him our husband. Verses 18 and 21 and 22, a God who's going to bring an end to warfare and renew all of creation and make all things new. Verse 19 and 20, now let, me, let me read those. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God who will betroth us to himself forever. Now, we don't use that word a lot. Well, we don't use that word any. Um, It's a stronger word than the word engage. It it involved the the paying of a bride price to the father of the bride, and it was essentially saying this is a done deal. Y'all are getting married now. There's, there's no going back. There's no breaking the engagement. It's finalized. And the bride price that Hosea tells us is being paid is righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. But the question when you read that is, okay, are, are these things that, that God is going to bring to his side of the marriage? That he's a righteous God and a just God. Or are these things that he's actually going to implant in us so that we will be righteous and just that we will be changed and the answer i think is is both that we are changed by this god that we are we are married to that we are betrothed to that god is a righteous god and he comes to us in righteousness and yet as we talk about in the doctrine of justification by faith he credits the righteousness of jesus to us so that we can stand in his courtroom and then he actually begins the process in sanctification of making us Righteous, That God is a just God who delights to right wrongs. But then he in turn make us into people who are for justice. And want to see wrongs righted in this world. God is a God of steadfast love and loyalty. Who will make us people of steadfast love. God is a God of mercy who will make us merciful as we become amazed by his mercy. That God is a God of faithfulness. 
You will make us faithful. And then finally in verse 23, Hosea shows us that God will allure us by giving mercy to those who have received no mercy and don't deserve mercy. And calling those His people who have been not my people and didn't deserve to be His people. And enabling us to respond to that, you are my God. You are my God. See, God looks at sinners who have said, praise money, praise sex, praise pleasure, praise power. These are where all blessings flow from. They, they come from these things. God looks at those who are, are, are weighted down by their sense of guilt and their sense of shame and says, I'm going to show you a better God than the ones you've been running after. I'm going to be a better lover to you than the ones you've been throwing yourself into the arms of. I'm a God who sees you as you are and still wants you. I'm a God who will always speak tenderly to you. I'm a God who is going to be intimate with you and restore that intimacy that's been lost. I'm a God who's going to make all things new. I'm a God of righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. And I'm going to change you into a person of righteousness and justice and steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a God who says in 1 Peter, as he quotes from Hosea, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Where in the world do you find a story about a God like that? And it's right here in these scriptures. And it revolves around Jesus. And it revolves around the cross. And it revolves around a Jesus who came to take our sin and our guilt and our shame and to give us His righteousness and to show us mercy. To the, the way back home is to see the beauty of this God who restores. Uh, some of you know the name Garrison Keeler. Uh, Garrison Garrison Keeler for years hosted a show on NPR called Prairie Home Companion. Uh, I think that was the name of it anyway. And then another pretty well-known called the, the Writer's Almanac. Um, and they're pretty famous stuff. It was really well-done show. They were really well-done shows. But you can't find them online now. Like if you go to iTunes this afternoon and type in Writer's Almanac, it's just gonna it's gonna be blank because I tried this yesterday. Like it's all of his life's work has been erased. From the internet. Why is that? Well, a couple years ago, he was accused of inappropriate behavior to several women, and I don't know the details of all that, but he, but he, at least in a public sense, is paying for that in terms of just all his life's work being wiped out. But a few weeks ago, uh, Garrison Keeler went to an Anglican church in Manhattan, and I don't know that he got converted. I don't know that he came back to God. I'm not claiming any insight into what actually happened there but as you read his facebook post which i'm about to read parts of it to you i think this is what it looks like when somebody who knows they're a sinner starts to see the beauty of the gospel story and starts to believe that maybe god could forgive me he says i wept in church this morning i sat in my pew and wept big tears breaking several decades of dry-eyed Christianity and in an Episcopal church. 
It was a healing service. And after the sermon, the clergy and deacons stood in a line across the front of the church and people were invited to come forward for prayers of healing. Some old, some young, came up to a clergy person and the two of them joined hands and the supplicant leaned forward and whispered and the clergy person prayed for him or her. These encounters took several minutes. There was no hurry. It was so moving, the visible body of Christ offering prayerful attention to individuals who needed it. And I wept so that I couldn't even sing the healing hymn, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. A steady stream of people, and then I joined them, and I went to a black lady deacon who took my hands, and I whispered that I have too much anger about a wrong done to me, and I feel crippled by anger. And she prayed in a soft Caribbean voice a long prayer as I stood there trembling. And then the hymn, It is well with my soul, which I love. And another with the chorus, He will raise them up. He will raise them up in the last day. And all around me, Episcopalians holding their hands in the air for faith in the blessed resurrection. Anglicans being charismatic. I grew up in a cold, fundamentalist sect in which doctrinal purity was the whole emphasis. There was no laying on of hands, only wary, sidelong glances. This is a miraculous church. I would move to New York just to attend there. And besides all that, I wrote four limericks during the sermon. (laughs) You know, the Garrison Keillor fans. Um, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. I am weak and willful and bored. I've abandoned your ways, but I kneel in your praise. Bless my pen and my laptop, my sword. I say the prayer of contrition and see my pernicious condition. And then in an instant and cleansed, at least rinsed, a sinner, but a newer addition. You know, that just sounds to me like, I don't know what's going on in his heart, but that sounds to me like a man who's starting to believe that maybe this gospel could be for me. Maybe this gospel could be for me. And the question for you this morning is, is will you believe that this gospel is for you? Let me pray. Father, you are uh, the God from whom all blessings flow. And you are very kind at times to keep those blessings flowing, even though we are giving credit to the wrong gods for those blessings. And you're very kind at times to remove those blessings so that we might come to our senses. And you're incredibly kind and gracious to restore us and renew us and forgive us when we come back to you. So Father, I pray that we would see the beauty of that and the beauty of the gospel message and to believe that, yeah, that gospel is even for me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.